I've looked at that play a hundred times. I'm still not sure he got into the end zone. Well, unfortunately, I, I think he did. You know, the biggest thing is I remember going into halftime. And I remember everybody in that locker room just looking at me like, dude, you just lost the Super Bowl for it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Hard to believe we're already to the end of season two of Half Forgotten History, but before we get into the season finale for season two, I have good news. Season three is already well underway and we have some very special surprises for you in season three where we're going to concentrate on the draft and golf in this little tournament you may have heard of. It's called the Masters. But I don't want to give too much away right now because this is a payoff to all the things we've gotten in season two. And of course, season two has been about the ring, Super Bowl champions from start to finish. But when we started season one of Half Forgotten History, we had so much great information and such great conversation with Kurt Warner, we couldn't pack all of it into one episode. So now we're going to close out season two with the guy that started this off for us, Hall of Famer Kurt Warner, Super Bowl champion, and all the stuff we couldn't get into episode one of season one, plus our little one shining moment, if you will. What was the first thing everybody thought when they saw the confetti fall and they realized, holy crap, I'm a Super Bowl champ? All of that rolled into one incredibly entertaining episode of Half Forgotten History to close out season two. Well, delighted to be joined today by Hall of Famer Kurt Warner. And people forget, until this recent Brady barrage over the last five or six years, before that run, when you looked up the greatest passing totals in Super Bowl history, number one was Kurt Warner, number two was Kurt Warner, and number three was Kurt Warner. How much pride did you take in that fact alone at knowing at that point when you had finished your last Super Bowl, Super Bowl 43 with the Cardinals, that holy bleep, an undrafted guy out of Northern Iowa from the Amsterdam Admirals and the Iowa Barnstormers had the top three passing yardage totals in Super Bowl history. Trey, I, I took a lot of pride in that. And for a couple of reasons is that I think when you play, you know, this position, play the quarterback position, um, you always want to be known as a guy that plays their best football in the biggest moments. When the game is on the line, you know, when everything is on the line, that this guy is going to show up. And so I always wanted to be one of those guys because my career was never going to be defined by 20 years and you know all these, these records or numbers because I got into the game so late. What I wanted to be recognized for is how I played in that moment. And so that was the first part. And then the second part you know, kind of adds on to that is I always wanted my teammates to know that when we were in the biggest moment, they could count on me to play my best football that when they needed me most, I, I would be there to show up. And so to me, that's what that speaks to is, is when you talk about those records, obviously it's, it's not just me. I had a lot of great talent around me, but it helps to speak to the idea that my teammates got the best of me on the biggest stage. And I'm extremely proud of that because, um, you know, there's a lot of guys that, that have played really, really good football in this league, um, but haven't played their best football in those moments. I look back on my career and say, that is one thing. When I got to the playoffs, when I was in those moments, I played as well as I've ever played. And I'm extremely proud of that because I do believe that is a defining factor for any great player is how do you play in the moment? Not, not just how do you play over a 20-year period. When the game is on the line and your team needs you, do you play your best football? And I really feel like I did that for the most part in, in those big moments. You absolutely did. And so Super Bowl 34 was the pinnacle. I want to go to the other two Super Bowls 
for a minute because they're different. We're not, we're not just going to end there. Reasons. We're not just going to end on no. the good one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll emphasize the good one, I promise. But, you know, two years later, you go back to Super Bowl 36 and you're playing the Patriots and you had beaten them in Foxborough on a frigid night. I think that game was 14 to 7. It was a Sunday night game on ESPN. So you'd already beaten them at their place in their element, you know, and I remember being at, at in New Orleans that week. That Super Bowl sticks with me for a lot of reasons. It was the first Super Bowl after 9-11. I mean, there were tanks in the cities. I'll never get over that. Just, oh, there's no, oh, there's a tank right there. Okay, that's a new thing. Um, but it felt like it was a coronation. And, and the one thing I remember about that game, and I've watched it a million times, and I'm sure you have too, in going back and looking at the first half, the way they were defending you guys, they were daring Mike Martz to run Marshall Falk. And for whatever reason, he just didn't. And finally, when you guys got the ball moving in the second half, oh, my God, Marshall Falk here, Marshall Falk there. It was like it took him halftime to realize this is what the defense is telling me we should do. How frustrating was that for you as the quarterback, knowing the game plan and how it was playing out? Yeah, I mean, it was frustrating. You know, and that was, a, again, before, before the new rules of the NFL. Yes. And so, you know, we were so much built on speed and we were built on timing. And as hard as it is to say, I, I go back and I give Bill Belichick and the Patriots credit for their approach to that game. They beat us up. They grabbed us. They held us. You know, they did all those things. But I truly believe the approach and probably what Bill told his, his secondary going into the game is, hey, we are going to hold them and grab them and beat them up until we get called. Right. We are going to force the officials to dictate the course of this game because everybody knows nobody wants a lot of you know, penalty flags in a Super Bowl. Nobody wants the officials to be the main man in a Super Bowl. So they went in and say, hey, we don't match up with these guys from a physical standpoint across the board. This is the only way that we're going to have a chance to slow them down. And so the first half, they, they just they beat us up all over. You know, again, we, we wanted penalties. We wanted, you know, defensive passes. We wanted all that stuff. But the officials weren't calling it early, as you kind of expect to happen in a, in a Super Bowl. And so, uh, you know, I tip my hat to them because, to me, it was the best approach that they could take. You know, they did some unique things to us uh, with Marshall, uh, you know, a scheme that, uh, you know, I have actually talked to Bill Belichick about it. I thought it was more designed for us, but he had said that they had run this a couple times before. But, you know, how they had two linebackers on, on the end of the line of scrimmage. So every time Marshall was going to release from the backfield, they were going to hit him. Uh, they weren't going to let him free release because he was such a big part of what we did. So it was extremely frustrating in that game. And, you know, once again, that was a game where, again, I think we put up 450, 500 yards of total offense, but we kept shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, we'd get down close to the red zone and we'd have a penalty or we'd have a mistake. And we couldn't, uh, once again, we couldn't finish in that game. So great to move the ball and get all these yards, but if you can't finish, it doesn't matter. And so it was so frustrating in that game because just like everything else, when you get to the big moment, all you want to do is, is put your best foot forward. You want to play your best game. And if the other team is better than you on that night, you tip your hat and you say, this is what it's all about. Two teams playing their best football and the better team won that particular night. The hardest thing was we didn't play our best football. We didn't play really well in that game. And that's why I think it resonates or, or I, it hangs with me so much is that I just wanted us to play our best game. And, and if we had, I think we probably win that Super Bowl. But to the Patriots credit um, and, and not to our credit, we didn't show up and play our best game. We didn't show up and play like the team 
that had played, you know, the greatest show on turf for the last three years. Uh, and it ultimately ended up costing us a Super Bowl, even though, you know, we got back in the game and it came down to a, you know, a kick on the final play of the game. We had plenty of opportunities to, to win that football game and, and we just didn't do it. And, you know, to the Patriots credit, that uh, they made the plays when they needed to, we didn't, but that's what makes it so tough is that on paper. And, you know, I still believe to this day, we were the better football team if we had played our game, but we did not do that. And the Patriots deserved to win that game. Yeah. And, and you mentioned you guys have been behind the entire game essentially. Yep. And then you hit Ricky Prohl for the tying touchdown at 17, by the way, side note, Ricky Prohl, three greatest catches in NFL history. Nobody remembers uh, the one touchdown against the bucks, this one, and then the Super Bowl 38, where he tied the game uh, from Jake DeLome to have wiped out by Adam Vinatieri. So you, you, get the, you get the game tied. You guys have all the momentum. And I remember John Madden on the broadcast saying, the Patriots just play for the tie and go to overtime. Well, they did not do that. So when you guys scored, and I, there was like a minute 47, something like that, left in the game, did you think we're going to overtime, or did you think they're going to come down and score on this team? No, we, we thought we are going to win this game. You know, the momentum had completely shifted. We felt at that point we had got a beat on what they were doing. The officials had called some of those plays, so they had to play uh, a little less physical with us. And we really felt like, okay, now we're rolling. We're going to take this thing into overtime because, you know, in that game, I mean, Tom Brady, he won the MVP, but I think he, he finished the game with 150 yards of passing. You know, in 50 of it. That, that last came. drive won him the MVP. Right, he, right. he was a non-factor in yeah. that game until that last drive. Exactly. Which kudos to him. Like you said, when it's on the line, he did it. But it was no not doubt. like, oh, Brady was everything in that game. Right. And so, you know, when we tied the game up and, you know, here's a, a young kid that's never been here and he's got 100 yards passing. Yeah, I think we're all thinking, okay, you know, we're going to go into overtime and we're going to get the football and we're going to win this football game. Um, you know, and, and to their credit, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Bill Belichick, you know, part of him is saying, okay, we can't go into overtime, you know, because we don't have what it takes. We have got to push the envelope here a little bit and, um, and try to win this game. And then, you know, and then Tom Brady making some big plays in that moment. Um, you know, we had some close opportunities to, to what I believe finish that game. We weren't able to do it. They were able to make the plays. And then, uh, and obviously Adam, uh, Adam made the kick. So then you get what I like to call your bonus Super Bowl, right? You, you went through the giant experience and you were there and the team was winning, but they drafted Eli, so you knew he was coming in. Uh, and you end up in Arizona. And at that point, Arizona was the place of last resort in the NFL. But you had that magical season uh, that got you to Super Bowl 43. And I'll never forget when you guys beat the Eagles uh, in the NFC Championship game, you said, yes, the Arizona Cardinals are going to the Super Bowl because nobody believed it at that time that the Cardinals were capable of that. So I just have to ask about one play in that game, and then then we'll <laughs> we'll go on to more important things. I'm still not sure if James Harrison got in before the touchdown at the end of the half. I mean, like for the people that don't know, you guys were – I mean, the Steelers were huge favorites in that game, and you guys came in and punched him in the mouth early, and then you're down by the goal line, and he makes this incredible play – and it's the end of the half. Like, yeah. either he gets in the end zone or they get nothing out of it, and it's the hugest dodge for you guys of all time. <laughs> right. And I still – I've looked at that play a hundred times. I'm still not sure he got into the end zone. Well, unfortunately, I, I think he did. And it was just, you know, an incredible play. There's, you know, so many things. You know, we could talk for 30 minutes about that one play <laughs> and what I saw and what transpired and, and how it all played out. Um, but, you know, the biggest thing is I remember going into halftime. And I remember everybody in that locker room just looking at me like, dude, 
you just lost the Super Bowl for us. <laughs> Are you kidding me? How, how did you let that happen? You know, because as you said, there was 18 seconds to go in the in the half. And so pretty much anything else could have happened outside of, you know, even if we got an incomplete pass and then he intercepts it on the next play, you know, or we run out of time or we tackle him on the one, they don't get any points. I mean, so many different things. But I do believe there was a blessing in disguise there, Trey, is because, you know, that first half, we had played good football, but we didn't play Cardinal football. The way that we had gotten to the Super Bowl was about being a spread team and attacking people and throwing the ball all over the place with our weapons, with Anquan and, and Larry and, and what we could do. And I really felt like we were just kind of hanging on in the first half, trying to play a different brand of football. And so when we fell behind by 10 points at the half, there was no choice but for us to play our game in the second half. And we came out and the number one defense in the, in the NFL could not stop us. And mm -hmm. what I loved is that the whole world got to see who the Arizona Cardinals were. They got to see who Larry Fitzgerald was and, and, and Anquan Bolden, and they got to see Darnell Dockett. And they got to see why the Cardinals were in the Super Bowl. And, um, and then it played out beautifully that you know, we took the lead with two and a half minutes to go in the game. And, yeah. you know, as I said, you know, before the, you know, after the end of the championship game, the Arizona Cardinals are going to the Super Bowl. By the same token, I believe for the first time in the history of our sport, people started saying, the Arizona Cardinals are going to win the Super Bowl. I mean, <laughs> I don't think that's ever been uttered before. Never. And that Never. to me is, is what that moment and that Super Bowl was all about. As I know, and I tip my hat to Santonio San and Big Ben and the Steelers and, and what they did, because that's what those games are about. Big players making big plays in the biggest moments. And they did that after we did that. Um, but it was really about showing people that we belonged and, and showing people, you know, where we had started and where we had ended up, that we were good enough to win the Super Bowl, that, you know, people actually saw us winning the Super Bowl there until those great plays were made at the end. And that to me was um, was just kind of the last crown or last jewel in, in my crown was to go, this is what it's all about. And that sometimes, Trey, you can win when you don't have more points on the scoreboard. And that's exactly what happened that night is our organization and all the players on our team and me, you know, at the end of my, we all won that night because we established something different about the place that we had been. And if there's one thing that, it, that it, you know, I want people to remember about my career was that I changed the places that I was a part of that I was a difference maker in those places because that to me, when, when you're a part of a team is what it's all about. Yes. We want stats and we want to win rings and we want to win championships, but it's really about, do you have an impact on the people and the places that you've been? And so even though we lost that game, um, you know, the Arizona Cardinals organization and all of us as players were, were huge winners in what we accomplished. And that, was able to carry on to now uh, the Arizona Cardinals expect to win. You know, people, you know, aren't surprised that the Arizona Cardinals are, you know, in first place in the NFC West or, you know, that they've competed in the playoffs a number of times since then uh, because that place and the culture has been established differently. And I give tremendous credit to Michael Bidwell, who's really taken over the operations for, for his dad. And he learned that during that period and he hasn't forgotten it. And he's doing the things he needs to do to be successful and, you know, and I take a little part of that with me and say, hey, I was a part of that change. Um, and those are things because 
in St. Louis, you know, the year before yeah. I took over, we were four and 12. That was the losingest team of the nineties. Um, you know, the year that I took over. And so to be able to know that you had impact on the different places uh, you played, the different places you were a part of, of those organizations are the things that I'm most proud of my career. And, um, you know, and that was a crowning moment for me in Arizona, even though it didn't work out exactly like we had hoped it would. You know, here on Half Forgotten History, our legends have racked up awards, including MVPs, championships, and Hall of Fame busts. And if you're looking for a credit card, you should probably want one that wins awards too. The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum card is NerdWallet's 2021 Best of Awards winner for 0% intro APR and balance transfer credit card. It provides a great way to pay for large purchases over time, as well as consolidating other card balances. And speaking of award winners, the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card is NerdWallet's 2021 Best Credit Card for Dining Out or Ordering In. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining. Get two times points on gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. And if you're into cashback or travel rewards, U.S. Bank has credit cards that feature those benefits as well. Check out the full suite of credit cards at usbank.com slash credit card. The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Incorporated, and the cards are available to U.S. residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Thanks to Kurt Warner for that. But, you know, I also asked a themed question during season two. Every person that we had on that won a ring, I wanted to know the first thing that went through their mind when they saw the confetti fall. So we thought we'd put these all together for you just so you could realize the impact realizing that dream had on all these guys who are playing as professionals, but really are kids at heart. And of course, we started with Eli Manning on wanting to win for himself after seeing his big brother do it. And of course, the support he got from the all-time quarterback stud farm dad, Archie. Obviously, everybody knows you're happy for your brother and you love your brother and you wanted him to succeed. But was there any part of you as a competitor is like, no, I wanted to do it first. I wanted to be the one. <laughs> well, um, I mean, you obviously, yeah, you want to you want to do it. But I, I guess for whatever reason in football, you know, Peyton and I were, were, were never that competitive. I think I think, you know, maybe because we never competed against each other. We were never in high school at the same time. I never you know played a football game against them until I got to the NFL, but it was also, you know, it wasn't a, a game of golf. It wasn't a pickup game of basketball that just, you know, was just bragging rights and, and just kind of brought me you know, a brotherly competition competition. This is, you know, this is your life. This is your job. This is what you work everything, everything for. And so we, we had just been so uh, supportive of each other and no one's been more supportive of me than, than Peyton, you know, all the way through, when I was in when I was in high school, he would come back from Tennessee during you know his spring break and watch our high school spring practices and you know and teach me what he was learning in college and vice versa. When I was at Ole Miss, he would come back from the pros during you know during the off season and come watch our spring practices and again you know sit with the offensive coordinators, Coach Cutcliffe, and talk about plays, concepts, drill work, you know, and, and always trying to help me. So we always. Uh, you know, we traded notes on teams. We traded, you know, um, when we were playing the, the AFC, he would help me on all those teams. I'd help him on the NFC East when they were playing our division. And so it's just so supportive that, you know, it wasn't me trying to get one before him. Uh, you just wanted to get to a championship and, and just, uh, you know, we really just supported each other and knew, you know, the kind of the only time we would, you know, play each other in the playoffs is if we were, 
and a Super Bowl together, you know, and that would have been, we almost didn't want, almost did not want that just because of what it would mean for my parents. They also just, you know, it'd be hard. It's hard enough in a regular season game, but a Super Bowl just, you know, the, the how high that high is and how low that low is after losing a Super Bowl, uh, it would be hard to want that for, for one another. Yeah. And, and you had to wait all of a year to get that feeling. <laughs> so I ask this for everybody I have on the show, when the clock struck zero and you realized, holy shit, we did it. What was the first thing that went through your mind? Yeah, it's a, it's a weird feeling when that happens. You really don't know what, what you, to expect. And it's everybody kind of does the same thing. You just, you run around with no, you know, no real, you know, uh, objective or plan. You just kind of run wildly. And eventually you just make eye contact with one of your teammates and then y'all hug. And that's just, that's what you do. I don't know. I mean, everybody kind of does the same thing. You don't really have a game plan, but mine was Jeff Beagles, the punter. I'm kind of running, you know, hands up. And you're kind of, all of a sudden, you know, me and Feegs, uh, who was, you know, in his, I think, 20th year in the NFL had never, you know, even won a playoff game. And I don't, I don't think, and never, you know, never been to a Super Bowl, obviously. And, you know, he went to Super Bowl in his 20th year. Uh, so we, 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 we connected, uh, and this, you know, you hug him and then you kind of do it again. You kind of walk around and, and, uh, just see, your, you know, at that point it's just chaos. It's just you know, the media and the fans and, and, um, you know, the confetti flying all over the place. Then it's, then it's just survival. How do I, how do I kind of get out of here and where, where am I going? What am I doing? Archie, when was the first moment after the game that you Peyton and Eli all got together? I guess outside the uh, outside the dressing room, yeah. Um, I think Peyton went in. I don't go in, but um, we we waited. Then nice little um, nice little post game party that uh, Abby Manning kind of had planned just in case, uh, even though we were double digit underdogs. Uh, uh, there's never a problem having getting attendance or getting people to come to those. I do remember. I do remember. I had. Um, over 200 text messages, um, <laughs> some from people that I, I really didn't know they had my number. I did change my number. <laughs> the happiest people were the Giants family, but the second was the Dolphin family because, you know, that Dolphin, oh, that Dolphin team is the one that had been undefeated. They sure didn't want this, uh, the uh, Patriots to time. And uh, we had dinner the night before right by Coach Shula. And, uh, boy, he, he came over, he said, you know, and then later, uh, I got a video tray. It was a bunch of dolphin players, like uh, for my era, you know, I played against that undefeated team, but the Dick Anderson, Bob Greasy, Manny Fernandez, Jim kick and a bunch of guys were together out at a country club watching the game. They went outside and did a little video. They might've had a cocktail or two. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> did a little video and sent it to me. And it was, it was really cool they were extremely happy also had a great time talking with ed reed who still has the greatest hat in the history of the hall of fame and shrine at ceremony and of course ed finally got his super bowl very late in his professional career but he did it in his hometown of new orleans and so we talked to him about what that was like and the confidence he walked into that super bowl with knowing it was his time you know i knew he wasn't losing that game either man like uh, we don't lose bowl games I don't lose <laughs> the you mentality on the Ravens. I love it for it to come to fruition after, you know, having, having lost the year before and, and having the thoughts of getting there, knowing that 
man, it was such a joy. Like I cried for the AFC championship game. I didn't cry um, for the Super Bowl. You know, I just, I just soaked it all in. Like I knew, I knew we were winning this game, man. But you win the championship in your hometown. You talked about, you know, crying when you knew you were getting there, but it was more a sense of you, you just did it when the Super Bowl was over? Oh, yeah, no doubt. It was, it was such enjoyment. Once we won the Super Bowl, man, like I said, I knew it. You know, even even when they started to come back, you know, I was telling my teammates, like, on the side, like, I don't care how many points they score. So long as they don't score more than us, yeah. we're going to win this game. You know, and uh, once the game was over, man, it was like heaven. I mean, dream come true. I'm from New Orleans. I, I grew up five minutes in Metairie, Louisiana, born at Charity Hospital, which was two seconds away from the Superdome. The Baltimore Ravens was the last team to play in the Superdome. Then Katrina hit during the preseason. We was the first team to play in the Superdome for the Super Bowl after Katrina. It was a storybook storybook um, ending, you know, to my career in Baltimore, you know, and how I got there, the roads that was traveled, you know, the ups and downs, the bumps and bruises. You know, when I woke up that morning at the Super Bowl, I saw a steamboat going, going across the Mississippi River, you know, where I lost my brother. And I'm looking at this steamboat and I could feel it in my spirit that this is our day. This is our game. And the, the steamboat is decked out in purple. You know, wow. um, which is which is crazy. You know, it's even more crazy that I'm talking to you and it's my brother's anniversary tomorrow, you know, of his passing, you know. So yeah, man, I I just knew it in my spirit, like it wasn't happening. Plus I ate oysters the whole week, so somebody had to pay for that. <laughs> well, someone did. Uh, I can promise you that. <laughs> Now, Damian Woody has a plethora of Super Bowl memories to go through, but when we sat down for our interview with him, we talked specifically about the first one that put the Patriots dynasty in place after the tuck rule and everything else that finally got them to that Super Bowl. And I asked Damian what it was like seeing that game-winning kick from Adam Vinatieri go through the uprights as time expired. Can you describe in the best way you can what it meant what it felt like as soon as you saw that thing go through the uprights. Because no one thought the Patriots were ever going to get close to the playoffs, let alone get to the playoffs, let alone beat the greatest show on turf. You're, what was the first thing that went through your head when you knew that field goal was good? I literally saw a light at the end of the tunnel. And what I mean by that is... Oh, chills. Yeah, I saw a light at the end of the tunnel because... Throughout the whole season, even when we were winning, it felt like we were, I was in darkness because Bill just, he hammered on you every single day. He applied the pressure on you every single day. He never wanted you to be, to be relaxed. His whole thing was get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so in that moment, when, when I saw that ball go through the uprights, it literally felt like a light just came down on me that we did it. All of that hard work, all of the, 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 the training camp, the pads on Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes Fridays, the mental gymnastics that Coach Belichick put us through on a daily basis, 
it was all worth it at the end of the day. It was so great to talk to Teddy and talk to him when we did it because the Chiefs were trying to do the thing that Teddy and the Patriots last did, repeat as Super Bowl champs. As we all know, the Chiefs did not. So Brewski and those Patriots of Super Bowls 38 and 39 still stay as the last team to do it. And the emphasis with Teddy was on how important that was and how difficult it was, not only physically, but mentally. 24-21, you win Super Bowl uh, 39, and you've done it back-to-back -back championships what did and there's a picture actually of you with holding the paper and holding up three because it was your third yeah there it is right there but what what did it mean to you knowing that because there's there's winning but there's somebody wins every year right there's winning and then there's defending and people always say it's a completely different team because some players are going off all that kind of stuff but at the end of the day repeating as a champion is the hardest thing to do when did it sink in that we did this. We were able to actually pull it off. Uh, I think you, I think moments I think of like that where you of reflection and sort of all encompassing what was possible and what is possible and what you did. I mean, even over the Super Bowl losses and the wins is when you finally get back to your room that night, you know, and it's, it's late and, but it still takes you a little while to get to sleep, even though it's really, really late. And then you sit there and you just think about, everything that you've accomplished. And I think that was the moment for me back in my hotel room after the celebration, after everything, because there's happiness, there's, there's, there's family, there's friends, there's pictures, there's, there's dancing with the trophy and all that stuff. But boom, all the noise is quiet now in your room and you realize like, dang, you know, that's three out of four. And that was my moment in my hotel room, yeah. Well, we had the leading rusher in the history of the NFL on Emmett Smith. It was a good time to reminisce on just how impressive that Cowboys team of the 90s was that won three Super Bowls in four years, the first to ever do it. And while last summer the last dance showed the swagger of the Chicago Bulls, and yeah, they had it. No team ever in football may have had more swag than those Cowboys of the 90s, and they knew it. You mentioned the second straight Super Bowl, and that was a that was a tough year. Again, Aikman got hurt that year. Bernie Kosar came in and helped you guys win the NFC Championship game that yep. year. Yeah. Um, but you guys were down thirteen to six half. Yep. What happened at halftime? What was this? What was the halftime speech like? Because this is the same team that you'd beaten the previous year, fifty-two to seventeen. It was their fourth straight year trying to win a damn Super Bowl in Buffalo. Yeah. What was going? Take me in, take me in the locker room at halftime. What was going on, Trey? It was it was calmness, um, and it went pretty simple. I come in the locker room. North Turner comes up to me, say, "We're gonna get you the football." Jimmy Johnson come up to me, say, "We're gonna get you the football." And then, and all of a sudden, I hear commotion going on in my office line. The Air Williams, Larry Allen, and everybody else. They just Nate New jump up and down. They all get hyped up, get ready. I'm like, yeah, it's about time. It's about it's about to be on now. And and you know. Like Buffalo did in the previous Super Bowls, they made the fatal mistake. Yep. They turned the ball over. James Washington picks it up, it up, runs it back for a touchdown. We tie this game back up. And then all of a sudden, they go one, two, three, and out of punt. And that drive that we had, that eight-play eight play drive. Power on every play, right? Seven run plays. Seven run plays straight. I mean – Except for the seventh play was a pass play, but the eighth play was a run play, and it was for a 20-some yard touchdown. We ran power right, slant left, power right, slant left, 
we just ran that thing straight down the field for 60 or 70 some yards and it was and the game was over because what Jimmy and Norv realized and and you're right Troy was banged up yeah people forget we didn't have a bye week right and he had got a concussion the week before against San Francisco Ted so Washington never played in that Super Bowl because yeah. he wasn't quite all the way there. <laughs> no, he was not. He was not. And, and we struggled in the first half. So they shifted gears fairly quickly. And they leaned on the thing that got us in the, in, into the playoff in the first place was that running game the whole entire season. And I remember you guys had taken the lead, and it was in the fourth quarter, and you were driving down again, and it was a fourth and one or fourth and two, whatever, from the goal line, fourth and goal. And, you know, a kick puts you up at a comfortable margin that you're probably going to win the game. And Jimmy was like, no, nah, we ain't kicking it. We, they, they ran it to you on the left side. When he does that, because he did that a bunch, you know, before that game, we'll find out their brass or paper mache. We, we, we know the whole story there. But when in that situation where a field goal probably wins you the game, and Jimmy Johnson said, screw it, we're going to ram it down their throats one more time. What did that give that team? What, what kind of energy did it give you knowing, hey, man, he knows I'm going to get it? Hey, Jimmy, one thing about Jimmy, Jimmy knew his players left and right. He knew the energy of the players. He knew the swag of the players. He knew how we practiced, whether or not we were going to have a close game or a game that no one could even touch us. He knew his team. He knew his players inside out. He knew how to push the right buttons. And at the end of the day, when it came down to that fourth and one at the goal line, and what we had did early on in the third quarter, and, and now we're down there, Jimmy's like, shoot, I got one of the best runners in the game. When it comes down to getting a touchdown, I know my guy going to get me a touchdown because <laughs> I was a touchdown hunting machine. I, that, that was the mission. You get me down there, I'm going to find a way to get in that end zone one way or the other. Like I tell my son, EJ, when you get that close, it ain't no dancing. It's one cut and go, baby. And get behind your pass. It's mono mono. It's you have to rise up and become bigger than you really are and get into the end zone. Find that goal line and you penetrate that doggone white line and it's over. Period. I really enjoyed our conversation with Chris Long because here was a guy that went from a very good college program to a terrible NFL team and had to endure a lot of crap to finally see the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Not once but twice in back-to-back years with separate teams. And Chris shared us the difference between joy and relief in each of those Super Bowl wins. What was the first thought you had when you realized all that shit, for lack of a better term, that you went through has been washed away from a football perspective by the one thing that everybody wants? It was relief, man, but it was, it was absolutely relief. It was more relief than it was like just being overcome with it. Um, I didn't, I didn't like cry or anything like, but I thought I would, I was just more appreciative and relieved and like relieved that, okay, like I didn't get the snaps I wanted. This wasn't the perfect year, but I played well with the snaps I had and, and uh, made my mark, my little mark on uh, doing my job. You know, like my job was to pressure people on third down you know, you have six, seven pressures on 18 snaps. You feel pretty good about that. A couple hits and the hold, like I was good. So from then it was just like, enjoy the party, man. You know, it was just, it was enjoy yeah. 
those guys, man, because we had the best locker room. It was just such a good locker room. And those guys, I mean, from Matthew Slater to Jules to Devin McCourty to, you know, Rob Ninkovich, who I'm still really tight with. And my, I talked to Devin the other day. Like I talked to Jules the other day. I talked to Slate the other day. There's a very special locker room that they had, man. And um, that's if you ask, like, what does New England have right? Sure. There's some things about it that can rub guys wrong and that sort of thing. But the people in the locker room, the dudes that they had assembled were truly amazing dudes. And so the parade was amazing. The party that night, like um, just the plane ride back. It was so new to me, man, you know, to, to be done with football for the year. I'd never finished pro football and woke up the next morning doing anything but like playing Call of Duty, booking a booking a vacation and getting ready to watch football where I'm going to watch wild card round. I said this earlier, you're in the most exclusive club in the history of the NFL. There are only five players, five players yeah. that can say they've won back-to-back Super Bowls on two different teams. Deion Sanders, Ken Norton, yourself, your teammate, LeGarrette Blunt, who mm-hmm. also went with you from New England to Philadelphia, and Brandon Browner. Uh, you go back the second year uh, to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 52, and – Listen, we're having Zach Ertz on. I'm going to let him tell that story because, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't Absolutely. have the experience that you yeah. have. But but the idea – you almost had the sack that ended the game. I mean, I remember down the stretch right before, you know, right before uh, the, the Hail Mary, you almost got Brady on the it ground, right? It, it still haunts you? Yeah. Even though you got two rings, that missed sack haunts you? I hate that picture so much. <laughs> I'm greedy, you know? Yeah. Like, I wanted Hall. Like, you yeah. – you know, like it was amazing. <laughs> I I want that sack though. I, like, and I think about like the ball is three inches from my hand and I'm just thinking one more little like hitch and we got the ball out. And then, uh, you know, it was an amazing year though. It's like, you see what's going on there right now. Yeah. And I pull for those guys, man. I got a lot of guys on that team. You talk about a special team and we just know something like the new England experience is one thing. Cause it's this is what we do we are a machine and yes it takes chance and luck and hard work and nothing's automatic but this is what we do philly we were picked to be a bottom four four quarter of the league team so looking back and you don't know it when you're in it you feel it but you don't know what it meant until afterwards like nobody could fuck with us it was just like we had that mentality and it was just like we're the team that everybody's afraid of you know, it was just like, we were just dangerous. And so that's a cool feeling. It's a cool feeling to be a part of that group. And it also goes to show you how hard it is to get back there because, you know, it's just been rough, man. It's been really rough there. They've had bad luck. They've made bad decisions. Um, And it just goes to show you how Sometimes it's like, I'm not saying lightning in a bottle because I I do believe in those guys, but it's just, it's hard to recreate that. You know, offensive linemen get this stereotype of just big, dumb, hulking guy blocking man in front of him. But there's a lot more than that. And when we had our conversation with Lane Johnson of the Eagles, who went on to win Super Bowl 52, you saw a lot of that. And when we had our conversation with Lane, he gave us a very interesting answer about what was the first thing that went through his mind when he realized, holy crap, we pulled it off. When you finally realized the clock struck zero and you guys had won the Super Bowl, which means you're now a part of history, what was the first thing that went through your mind? First thing is I'm used to seeing everybody go crazy when the confetti's falling. So I just stayed seated for about 20 seconds and watch everybody go nuts. And then uh, 
first guy I see is uh, Coach Mike Grow and give him a hug. And then, man, just uh, – uh, it felt really special for the older guys. I remember Brenton Selleck was talking about, I guess he was in the NFC championship game early in his career. And he was like, and they lost. And he was like, man, I'll be back. And then he made, you know, he gave us a speech, said, you know, I'm here 11 years later and you don't get very many opportunities. So to have guys like that, Chris, uh, Jason Peters, the guys that have been around the league for a long time to get that was, was very special. Torrey Smith, you know, that uh, the good thing about that team, man, we had the perfect blend of, you know, young guys and then the, the better in leadership too. So uh, just, a, just a perfect storm and something we, we got to get back to. It was great to sit down with Zach Ertz after a very difficult season for him in 2020. So we sort of negated that a little bit by talking about the elation of winning Super Bowl 52 when he and the Eagles with a backup quarterback somehow beat Tom Brady at his peak when he played his best Super Bowl game ever statistically. And Zach's answer about what was the first thing that went through his mind really makes a lot of sense, especially when you realize what just happened in February. I always ask everybody this question. The moment you realized we did it, I'm a Super Bowl champion. What was the first thing that went through your mind? Uh, does Tom Brady have another chance to score a touchdown? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it felt like even now, it doesn't feel like I, when I scored that touchdown in the game, it was like, okay, Tom's going to go score another one. And then we're going to have to come out and score again. Um, so it never really hit you that we won the game, won the Super Bowl until you're like on the podium, um, seeing with all the confetti flowing, like, man, we really did this. And seeing, seeing Brent Selleck cry, he's the ugliest crier yeah. I think I've ever seen. Um, so it was, it was at that point that I think I, I really realized that we did it. Well, my boy Jeff Saturday knows the highs and the lows of winning and losing Super Bowls and the euphoria that he and the Colts took from Super Bowl 41 when they finally got Peyton his ring. Very different from the dark cloud that still hangs over him to this day in what happened just three years later in the same stadium against the Saints in Super Bowl 44. When it's all said and done, what's a stronger emotion? the high of winning it or the low of losing it? Oh, man. Probably the low of losing it. Yeah. Because I think it lasts longer, right? The high is more exciting, and it, it, but you know you got to go do it. The, the loss just seems permanent. You know, the, the win feels temporary. It's, it's a great feeling, you know, but you're, you're so competitive. You're going to go, that, that, man, that loss just feels such a permanent, oh, just, just, a, just a brutal brutal thing to deal with the way that we did it and, and again man it's one obviously that, that i'm not i'm not quite over <laughs> i'm not picking up on that at all just so you know i i wasn't getting that vibe until you told me that's so. right <laughs> what did it mean for you to beat the patriots go outdoors in crappy weather and run the ball to win a super bowl oh bro Brit, you know you think about erlacher briggs you think about tank john like like these dudes were stacked at defense, right? Like their their whole claim to fame and their calling card was defense. Lovey Smith, right? The way they play, they're going to be physical. They're going to hit you in the mouth. Um, and for us, like you named it, right? Finesse, you know, indoor team, big plays. You know, they're not going to be. And and we rushed for over 190 yards. I'm telling you, man, we hit them boys in the mouth from the get go. And, and we knew our plan was to go attack them. And Dami Rhodes. Man, 30, dude, that, first of all, he is the greatest teammate you can have. Like, you're always going to laugh. You know, the, the, he, he loves the shine, right? He's from Texas, you know, so he loves his, he loves his, his, his laces to be different colors, his sleeves to be, you know, he always wants to shine. And he showed up 
in the biggest moment, man. Undrafted guy just like me who had earned his way, and he freaking balled out. We got him a sprint draw. I mean, we, we probably got him 10 or 15 times. We, we just got at him and hit him, hit him right downhill. And Dami would set those plays up. And to your point, that kid could not have played better. I mean, he just totally tore them up. And I think from there, from, you know, from everything they had worked on, guaranteed us running it down the throat was not their plan. You know what I mean? They had no idea that was going to be, you know, our, our kind of game plan and our, our game and our attack. And we got after him, man. It was from an offensive lineman's perspective, it's, it's what you dream about, man. Like, like when I beat the when we beat the Patriots, we ran all over them. When we beat them, we we ran all over them. And you know, from the Bears, Patriots, two teams that everybody knew defensively were led that way, and just 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 incredible moments for us as an offensive line. You know, I've always asked this about players that have both won and lost Super Bowls. Which feels better, the highs of winning or the lows of losing? And almost to a man. Every single one of them, including Willie Colon, who we had on, who won in Super Bowl 43, then lost Super Bowl 45 two years later, will say to you, the crush of the defeat is way more than the euphoria of the win. So I've seen the elation of what yeah. it means to win a Super Bowl. And you also know what it feels like to lose. Because a couple of years later, Super Bowl 45, you guys fall to the Packers 31-25. Can you put into words how different it feels to win a Super Bowl and how shitty it feels to lose one. It's the worst, man. You gotta understand, living in Pittsburgh, it's already a gray ass city. It's gray. Every Friday, you have the whole city putting on Steeler jerseys from the cafeteria lady to the uh, to the dude working at T-Mobile to the guy serving you pancakes in the morning. Everybody has Steeler jerseys. So the, the city really embodies and believes in the culture and the Pittsburgh Steelers. So when you go to the Super Bowl, and at the time, you got to figure, we in Dallas. I don't know why Dallas was never prepared for snow, which no. is absolute. It's Brother, I went, to, I went to school down there, and it happened once or twice. They shut it down for like they an inch. And that down. snowstorm came down. They were effed, man. They were you had you, you had two cold-weather teams coming down to Dallas. It was going to be bound to snow. We were bringing the snow with us. <laughs> and what kills me is they, instead of putting salt down, they were putting sand, yeah. right? So we were so we ended up practicing at TCU. Uh, and I remember getting on the bus. And they would kind of have like this over like this little camera thing where they kind of show you the news. And we were watching on the news cars that were doing 360s going down the highway. And I'm just like, I don't want to die because Dallas yeah. is not prepared for snow. And so I can remember Mike Tomlin was saying like, listen, man, ain't nothing going to stop us. They're going to bring a hurricane, whatever. We coming to win the goddamn Super Bowl. And so he kind of locked us into that week. If Dallas ain't prepared, if Green Bay, well, we knew Green Bay was going to be prepared. Hell, it snows in Green Bay. Whatever the situation is, we're going to be prepared for that game. And we were prepared for that game, and I really felt. But alongside of that, we did have three turnovers that game and still had an opportunity to win the damn game at the end, which is mind-blowing in itself. You give it three turnovers, usually the game's, the game's a wrap. We yeah, still had a six. Yeah. yeah, we had a shot to win. Well, going, going home, man, um, I remember walking off that field, the confetti, Hines is crying. Uh, was sitting in the locker room. It's very somber. It's very quiet. And there's a part of you that's like, listen, we made it to the Super Bowl. Let's just be happy, right? And then there's another part of you that you know you have to walk back into that, fly back to that city where mom and the waiter and the guy at T-Mobile and the little baby with the jerseys, are they're just heartbroken. They're crushed. And you have to go through a whole offseason in this gray-ass city knowing that you just lost the Super Bowl. They were used to, you know, the confetti parades where we were bringing home the Lombardi. And it's, it's a very morbid feeling, man. Just And on top of that, you don't know if you're going back. You can yeah. think you're going back. You can have the same guys 
ready ready to go to battle with you the next year, but there's no guarantee uh, that you're going to go back. So for us, it was it was hard, man, and it was it was it was tough to deal with. Um, just because we weren't, we in our head, we were going to win the Super Bowl, and we were going back to Pittsburgh, and we was about to light up the off season and have, and have a funky good time. But that wasn't the case, so it is. It's tough to swallow the disappointment, and then once you get back and watch the tape, you're like, oh, that's why we lose. Well, why we lost that game? Do you ever get over it? I mean, you have a ring, so that helps. But do you ever get over not getting another one? No, because the NFL Network doesn't let you. They show it, <laughs> bastards. Yeah, they don't. They show they show the one you won. And then it can show the one you lost, and you're like, well, shit, I was happy two, uh, two weeks ago until you put this shit on. <laughs> well, the New York Giants twice beat the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick-led New England Patriots in Super Bowls, and they were the only team to do that before Nick Foles and the Eagles. And Victor Cruz was on one of those teams. And remember, Victor Cruz was an undrafted free agent, and he caught a touchdown in Super Bowl 46 against the Patriots uh, in Indianapolis, first touchdown of the game. And so when it was all over and he saw the confetti falling, Victor almost had to pinch himself, was like, is this real? When the clock struck zero and you were a one-star recruit that went to UMass, was an undrafted free agent, fought your way onto the league, what was that feeling like when you realized, holy shit, we did it? It was it was crazy. It was just like my entire body, it was just an out-of-body experience. and. I just kept looking for the confetti. Like, that's the one thing you, you see on TV as a kid. Just, when, when's the confetti coming down? And then they popped it up there, and you just you just rel- relish in that moment. And you think about the journey, right? Every time you reach the pinnacle like that, or you reach kind of that, that goal that you're looking to set for yourself, and you reach it, you kind of just look back. And you have that time to reflect and say, man, I've accomplished something. And, and it's something that can't be taken away from you. I remember my first... Uh, my first year in the league, Dominic Hickson said, man, you better rack up these things that they can't take away from you because those yeah. are the things that are going to stick. Those are the stories that are going to matter. Those are the friendships and the relationships that I've made that are going to matter. And you just think about all of that. And you're, and I'm appreciative. I'm appreciative that I went through what I went through because I think it, it brought me full circle and helped me appreciate where I am now so much more. Ryan Clark, I believe, really started that long train of success from LSU DB to professional DB and having so much success in the NFL. But remember, Ryan was undrafted. And Ryan didn't start his NFL journey with the team he won a Super Bowl with, the Pittsburgh Steelers. He started with the Giants and then migrated to Washington before finally finding that success as a member of the Black and Gold. And that long journey was the first thing he remembered when they took down the Cardinals in Super Bowl 43. In the moment, again, undrafted, out of LSU, uh, from Marrero, all these kind of things. When it hit you, you were cut by the Giants when you thought you'd made that team. The Redskins at that time, now the WFT, or the yeah, the WFT, uh, said, yeah, we're going to go with Adam Archuleta over you. All those things are processing, and there you are as a Super Bowl champion. What was that feeling like? Bro, it was the ultimate relief, bro. I'm going to be honest with you, Trey. It was- relief. It, it, it was it was just relief, bro, because you got to remember the, the year before that, I lose one of my closest friends, right? Uh, I, I go through what I go through with, with sickle cell, and they didn't know if I was going to be able to, not, not only after I was, I, I, I lived, they didn't know if I was going to be able to play again, you know? And so the, the energy it took to, to, to get to the first game, uh, the energy it took, to, to play each week was different for me now because when, when, you, when you're sick or if you think you're going to die, right, and this is probably morbid, but, like, all I could picture was, you know, Trey Wingo 
on ESPN saying Ryan Clark has passed from complications in the Denver Broncos. And all I could think about was that they were going to show the last play of the game, right? The last play of the game, Jay Cutler takes a knee and I walk off. And all I could think about was like, how would that have been that the thing people remembered about you or that was shown was that Jay Cutler beat you and took a knee and you just walked off the field. You know what I'm saying? And so when we played Houston to start that season, I I could take you through every play that year and how I played it, why I played it. I tore my shoulder up week seven and then it happened again week 14. And they were like, you know what, man, like you might get nerve damages you play. I was like, there's no freaking way I'm not playing. Like they could they couldn't pop my shoulder back in, and they were like, "Well, we're just gonna we had to leave you in Tennessee." I was like, "The hell you will!" The last time you left me somewhere, I almost died. You know what I mean? And so I'm laying on the yeah. ground, bro. I'm laying on the ground in confetti, and people think like I'm laying there in like celebration. I can be honest, Trey, bro. I was exhausted. You know what I mean? It was just it was like all that. It was the the undrafted thing. It, it was being cut. Like when I was cut, bro, I worked at LSU. Like I had just asked Will Muschamp, "Could I be a graduate assistant?" You know, like my football life was over in that sense. And then to be at that point, man, have all that those things culminate in, in that moment, I was like, this was, it was bigger, it was bigger than me. It was about all those people, the doctors, the nurses, my family that that helped me get back to that moment. And to share that with, with the greatest organization in the world, with, you know, one of my closest friends still, Troy, it was, it was amazing, bro. And I was just like, I was relieved that we had got there. But I was also relieved we didn't lose. It's interesting. I always like asking that question because the answer you get is never what you expect. You know, it's it's never it's never this joyous eruption of happiness. It's always something else that people are thinking about in that moment, and that's really cool. So that'll do it for season two of Half Forgotten History. Man, it flew. Thanks to all the people that shared their time about what it was like to win a Super Bowl championship. But don't go anywhere. There's no break. Season three is already going to be delivered. New episode coming next Thursday. And season three is about two things. The NFL draft and a little tournament you may have heard of. A championship, in fact. The first golf major of the year. The Masters. We'll have Masters champions on. We'll have people talking about their experiences in the draft and how it helped or hurt their NFL careers. And we've got a really, really exciting new sponsor to tell you about. It's going to be great. Season three, coming your way next Thursday.